0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas,
1: hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth.
0: Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. I will skip the part where I brag for three minutes about how great and cool I am. Seeing as we are all qualified young men of skill and character. People like that stuff. Good, yeah. People like that stuff a lot. Some people say they're a sports junkie. I say I'm a politics junkie. The harder the conflict,
1: the more glorious the triumph. I'm playing this like a game. I would like very much to win. I love it boys, I love it. Where are you from?
0: I come from a very modest family. i want of course to be the first one to graduate from high school. I'm a progressive person. And I'm in a room full of mostly conservative people. Our masculinity shall not be infringed. I've never seen so many white people ever. I feel like
1: everybody has this secret underlying need for bipartisanship.
0: A message of unity, as good as it sounds, is not winning anyone any elections primary polls are now open. Get yourselves ready for a turbulent
1: election. <laughs> Whatever happens to you, best of
0: luck. You win, I support you fully. My name is Steven Garza, and I'm running for governor. <laughs> Let's get applause
1: because. As to the political views voiced of my speech, sometimes you gotta say what you gotta say in an attempt to win. I think he's a fantastic politician. But I don't think a fantastic politician is a compliment either.
0: We're going to do shock and awe. It's going to be awesome. I want y'all to take out your phones and go on Instagram. Everyone, come on. Oh, my God.
1: show the world what patriots are made of that when
0: things get tough we pull ourselves by our bootstraps one nation under god lovers of the constitution of the united states of america that's politics i think that's politics (laughs) Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. On this episode, I am talking with Thorsten Tilo, who is the cinematographer of a lot of things, including the documentary that I saw recently called Boy State. Boy State may be as unsettling to me as Jesus Camp. This is one hell of a movie, and it is really... Very timely. I think it'll be timely every four years or maybe every two years. I really recommend that folks check out Boys State. I think it's an exclusive to Apple Plus, one of those Apple things. But track it down. It is definitely worth it. I hope you enjoy the interview. How did you decide that you wanted to get involved in filmmaking? I did an internship at
1: seventh grade with the school. And the public school system in Germany makes everybody everybody gets the opportunity to go to a real-life business to get an idea of what their dream job really looks like in reality. And I interned at this small television company, and obviously, I loved it. And the funny thing is that in the same building on the top floor, there lived a couple that was active in sort of in the 70s in this German terrorist group called the ARF. They were pretty aggressive. They took people hostage. They murdered a few people, politicians and business people. and. This couple, I became friendly with them in that time. And and what they did and how they also got away with, they ran the entire sort of publicity machinery of the ARF in that time. And they had an entire Umatic studio. So like the whole like A-B-Roll, like three-deck editing suite and the Umatic camera was sitting there. And they said, do you want it? And I said, hell yeah. So my dad came to the Capitol, picked it up in a huge truck. It's a spaceship full of stuff. and I brought it back to my town in the south of Germany and with my friends, we built a television studio and then we we got a symbolic license from the state government to run a small television station that could broadcast. We could broadcast once a week for one hour on Sundays afternoon. And so we would make these little vignettes and pieces about the political climate in our town. This is a town of 2,500 people at the time. They had a cable network that everybody was connected to, and so we could broadcast our own television show on a weekly basis and became incredibly popular, and it actually still exists in that town, the young
0: people still running it. What were you covering for this one hour?
1: The town had a lot of social political dynamics between the government, or so the mayor, and the church. It was almost ruled, like, secretly ruled by the church and by the priest, who was a real... Strong alpha male character, and everybody loved him, and he would really call the shots. And there was a lot of that dynamic of which doors can open, how long, what playgrounds are going to open, what's going to happen with the school, and so and a lot of like so social political drama that played out. And so we would hang out at the mayor's office and interview him and his people. We would go and do like little on the street, man on the street interviews with people that went to the baker and asked him their opinion and that kind of stuff. And then he did like branch more into doing little documentaries, which won one, one of big awards so or the nationwide award. And, and um, so
0: it just took off from there. And this was what, like mid nineties that you started doing this? This is mid nineties. Yeah. That's amazing. So you managed to take this thing that was there when you were a teenager and actually turn it into your entire career. That's right. And then what happened is i I was so passionate about that. My father was a scientist and wanted me to
1: go to a higher education school that focuses on physics and chemistry and biology and I did go for a year and it was terrible and instead of really studying i I started a school radio, installed speakers and built a radio station, and we would have and the school had. A radio station where we broadcast in the in the recess, and so my grades were terrible after 11th grade. And my father said, "Okay, you're going to have to drop all this stuff, drop the TV station, drop the radio. You're going to study." And I said, "I won't do that." And then he said, "Then you can't live in my house." And so I left my home at 16 and traveled to the capital, back to that guy, back to this little company. It's a three-person company. The man who ran it was a really talented cinematographer, and. First day of 12th grade, I, I my parents thought I was going to school and I was going to behave. And instead, I went to the train station and I took the train to the capital and I knocked on this guy's door. I walked in his office and said, I need a job. And he, he had a similar upbringing and like and, and traumatic experience in his life. So he said, come on in. And he said, okay, you you I will train you, but you have to edit first. So I became an editor. And this is the time where like, the be- very first beginning of non-linear editing, and I became very, very fast. I was so young, I soaked it all up. And then I became became really successful as an editor. I edited feature documentaries for Arte at 19. I had to lie about my age, and, and I loved it. And I built this whole 15-edit suite post-production house that still exists. And I ended up editing for 10 years. And after 10 years or so, I started going on trips with him, and he would train me as a cinematographer. It's a really old-school German education in in that sense.
0: Yeah, that's the long story. That's the long version of it. When you finally got out of the edit suite and started going out in the field and, and doing cinematography and camera work, I mean, what were some of those early works that you were doing?
1: Because people knew me as an editor and then slowly as a began to understand that I'm also shooting, and and my shooting was pretty good because i i think because of the training i've had as an editor i knew but i knew what to look for so people started hiring me or sending me this is so this is a european news and documentary network called arte they it's a collaboration between germany france and spain and switzerland and they make a lot of really wonderful high quality documentary work and they have offices around the world so once they understood that i shoot and edit they would send me to all the crises in the world to shoot but then also to edit my own stuff and i did that for years like fly to a flood in mozambique where tens of thousands of people died on like a five minute call like can you go to the airport right now and then spend a month in mozambique and documenting what's happening but then like every few days send 15 minute mini vignettes or documentaries back to europe to be broadcast so it was a fascinating experience because i was able to Sort of study my own shooting through my own editing for a long time and yeah it was a lot of travel 50 plus countries all over the place and there was a really good school I think looking back now it, it, it couldn't have been better for me to be able to learn through my own mistakes in that sense firsthand obviously that was often frustrating but it was a good good way of for me at least the way I I function and learn it was good
0: You talked about how you've been all over the world, and just looking at your body of work, it shows. There are documentaries, things set all over the place. And I'm so curious, what has been some of the most interesting things that you've done or seen over the years?
1: I got a call in late 2002 And, when, and and I was asking, could you imagine going to Iraq for a couple of months to see what happens if, there's, if the war is happening? And I said, hell yeah. And I was shipped to London to train for 10 days with an organization called Centurion, and they would train journalists and anybody who needed, needed to business people for hostile environment, hostile situations. I did that training and then flew straight from London to Baghdad. And this is like, now this is like, Early, early January 2003, and so I spent these la- last months leading up to the war in Iraq, and then and then stayed for for the war and 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 for quite some time after. And and that was a just a really beautiful and deep experience, intimately following a few children, a few families through that experience, and seeing that change, seeing what a lot of people didn't see. That I feel like is still not communicated well. At least this was my personal experience, and that. People were so friendly toward America and wanted this change and were hoping for this change and behind the scenes tried to make this change. And once it happened, it was amazing. It was like children and Christmas when the first cell phones all of a sudden were available and newspapers from Jordan and other countries around were sold in the streets and television sets and, di- and, and satellite dishes. And it, it was such a, it's such a unique moment in time. And, and to be there was, was quite formative for me. That was a real formative experience, and that included battle i I got into sort of the wrong respect got into some in, in some hairy situations and and it was traumatizing in a way as well to do that and then the other my first big documentary that sort of made made its way and, and and ran at film festivals was a, was a film that I shot over a year in in mexico and central America later in in, in two thousand and five where we followed immigrants from Salvador and Guatemala traveling through Mexico on this cargo train. The cargo train is called the Beast or La Bestia. And it was a journey. It was a beautiful journey and, and a formative experience for me to to experience. People just having to run away for whatever reasons they had and seeing what the reasons were firsthand as I experienced with them, street gangs and, and domestic violence and, all, and, and and poverty, and then following them on this cargo train on top of the cargo train with hundreds of other immigrants throughout an entire country and then crossing illegally into the United States and trying to make it was a a really deep experience and I think really informed my way of being empathetic to where people come from and acknowledging my own privilege in many ways,
0: but it was also a really cinematic
1: experience. That was a a beautiful film.
0: When you start working with director like a Eugene Jarecki or Marina Zenovich. I mean, some of these real kind of heavy hitters when it comes to documentaries. I'm very curious. How do you establish that relationship and try to figure out what they're looking for? For me, it's a lot of listening. I really listen
1: to the way they tell the story to the way they see what could happen. I listen carefully and have they made up their mind? What is it going to be? Are they curious about it? Are they open to change? Are they open to adjust our course as a story or a film develops? And I really try to make them talk about their vision and we share references about other films and visuals and watch documentaries that we like and talk about them. But the key for me is listen to what they have to say and not come to the project with my preconceived way of, this is how I want to shoot it. Really be open to how how they want to shoot it and how do I envision the visuals? And in documentary, that's really hard. It starts, it, it, it's so often talked about and, and done in narrative film, and it's wonderful to hear cinematographers and directors talk about their experience and how they collaborate on, on prep and designing the visuals and tonality and color and all of it and the lighting. And, and in documentary, it, 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 it is a really similar approach in theory, but there's the unknown. and. It's so easy that you have this vision of how you want to shoot it. But then the story you started actually isn't a story. It changes. And then you have to rethink your approach. Was the visual approach my strategy and how to capture this? Was that right in the first place? But then was, is that still right for the story we're now telling? You know what I mean? Because the documentary, always a good documentary always changes. It changes the story. It sharp turns and twists and Roadblocks. And so it's tough. It's really tough. I resisted that for a long time to even talk about it because I, I was trying to be puristic in my youth and like, no, you can't do it with documentary. There's no way documentary needs to be pure and we're not gonna design this. We're not sure and, and, and I, slowly I slowly I've sort of changed course on that slightly, but it's it's yeah, it's a tough one. It's such a fine, fragile relationship between A cinematographer and a subject i so often feel like that the way i shoot and are my shots sharp and am i a talented cinematographer am i technically flawless and you know can follow a scene and anticipate moments and be at the right time in the right place and expose correctly and find a beautiful shot or a shot that is adequate for whatever's happening, that's just half of my rent. Really what it is is to build a relationship because none of that can really happen if you don't connect with that person. And to me, it's so much more than being a person with a camera knowing my stuff, knowing, knowing the, the, the technical stuff, but it's about my personality and how do I talk with these people? How, how empathetic am I? am I? Am I curious about their life? Do I really care? Do I show them that I care? Do they, Care that I care are they suspicious of what I'm doing, and how do I build this relationship with them that they trust me? and that they trust me specifically in the moments when it gets hard when when their world collapses is that's when when our world collapses, we shut everybody out, including our friends, right when even shit goes down for you personally, that's really, really tough. and you don't want to put that on Instagram or put that out there. This is like this it then it gets very fast, very private and when somebody lets you in when their world collapses or when when, when there's drastic change, that's really when, when you can see that as a soul maker you have done your due diligence and you have actually cared enough to build a relationship that can withstand that trauma.
0: Well, that kind of leads me to boy State. And you're talking about that being there at the right time and capturing those right images. I mean, I'm very curious how boy State played out for you, you know, I've seen the finished product, but how was it for you actually being there and trying to capture this story?
1: It was a ride. It was, it was a grand adventure for me personally, a beautiful experience because I was involved in the film from the beginning. So we had a little bit of funding money and Jesse Moss and I crisscrossed through Texas in a car with Amanda, his wife and co-director on the phone, trying to go through 1300 boys trying to find the most interesting and compelling people without having met them, just talking on the phone. And Jesse and I would be in Houston and filming with a kid that, that we thought was, would be interesting. And then we would have got a call and Amanda would say, go to, go to Austin. There's this kid. See him tomorrow at three o'clock. And so we would, go, we would you know, meet all these kids. And Cassie and Amanda, the, the team really did a brilliant job in casting those kids because most of the people in the final product now, most of, most of the characters, we have already had a bit of a relationship and filmed before the event even started. And that was really crucial to the later relationship and to to being accepted. This is how we met Steven. Stephen we met in a small campaign office when he was campaigning for Beto as Beto was running. And so we went campaigning with him and we went, we canvassing with him and we saw him hanging out with the people that ran the little field office if you have that history with somebody it's 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 wonderful to build build on that and and then we got just lucky that that Stephen got as far as he got and that he was such a compelling person and and then we quickly realized that there's no way I mean Chesse is a cinematographer himself and has shot some of his documentaries himself, often for precisely that reason, to be intimate and to not have a big crew and, and that's how the two of us really connected is by being small and not having a big team, but being able to just connect with somebody. And not having sound people, being by yourself. And yeah, but there was there was going to be no way to shoot an event like this with just one or two shooters. So we had to we hired seven. We had we had a total of seven cinematographers for the week for the six that that the event happened. Our strategy was to attach one cinematographer to one of the subjects. So we had five people, sort of like. We were pretty solid on them and, and we had people attached to them and they had, we had floating people for emerging characters to cover events, to cover sidelines like uh, the the music competition and stuff like that but we had, we had a lot of shooters and each cinematographer met their assigned subject in the very beginning, sometimes even before they even arrived. They would travel back to the town where they would board a bus and they would film the bus ride so they had time to connect with them and get to know each other and then essentially wouldn't go away. that would stay with them for the entire time to really get their experience. That was our strategy. In the beginning, we thought it's just going to be them and there's going to be no sound people. So we had a microphone at each, each photographer had a small camera, a radio microphone, and they would attach it. They would put it on, on the subject in the morning and then film all day. And we had to shift course a little bit in, in, in the sound thing, because there's often so chaotic situations with 30, 40 kids in a room where it was very, very hard to pick up the sound on on one radio mic. Um, So we ended up, after day one, we ended up hiring every sound engineer, sound recorders available in Austin. (laughs) And that helped. And then we just stayed on them. We you know, picked them up in the morning and we filmed the whole day. It was crazy wild because neither of Jesse or Amanda could be there for all the shooting at all the time. It was just impossible. So they would have to pick who I w- were with to get an idea of who all these people and it was a lot of communication where we all talked about the day at the end of the day what we experienced who who, who we thought was strong who they interacted with who could be who could be a, an additional character that that seemed to be interesting there was a lot of communication happening and really exciting. It was really exciting because every, every cinematographer was excited about their subject and who they met and what they talked about and all the deep conversations and the drama going on in their lives and in their experience. Everybody got really into it. so It, 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 was, it was a fascinating experience because everybody loved what they did and, um, and then reported back to the team and, and we strategized and who, is, who is going to be another character, who are, we going to, who, are, who are we going to add and what's our strategy for the next day. And so we did that for six days, and that was it. That was the end. Then, then that was the end of production.
0: Who were you assigned to cover? I floated a little bit. I covered a lot
1: of Steven. And when Renee, when Renee emerged, I started covering Renee a lot. I was also shooting some of the interviews we shot in that interview room. I had a little bit of liberty to pop in and out where I thought it was important for me to be there. As soon as Renee came, I spent a lot of time with him. Then later, when the race was really on, I covered a lot of Steven until the very end.
0: You're not able to see everything, and you're you're talking to your fellow folks at the end of the night. Was it ever a surprise for you when you sat down and watched the finished film or the rough cut and saw all of the other pieces that fell into place?
1: Yeah, there were surprises. There were you know surprises in that there were moments that I thought and I experienced them were really really strong that didn't make the cut. We cut for over a year and we had at some point a really strong four and a half hour assembly like a rough cut Um, that was like a gripping film and that could have been a film but it was obviously too long we had to cut it down so it was you know at times painful process to make it shorter and a lot of beautiful moments and side stories sort of were left on the cutting room floor I wasn't there for the very first time Stephen gave a speech I don't know why, but I missed that one. And, and when I saw that first, it was incredibly powerful. And I was surprised how strong he was. And then there were surprises. in, in, in for example, I hadn't seen the drama in the beginning when Stephen was going around um, trying to get both. I knew there was a the drama, but the way it was cut was just so brilliant and so beautiful with the expected sort of the lead up to it. And I thought overall, the film was cut in such a smart, beautiful way that to me, it had a lot of. And they had a lot of surprises in, in that how, how gripping the story was told. Because over the week when he experiences it, it's a very long in process. And there's lots of dull moments in between. But seeing it sort of compressed to this storyline that they chose to follow, it, 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 it was wonderful to see.
0: What are you working on now? So I finished the documentary
1: recently about the frontline medical workers in New York City during the first wave of COVID and I spent about uh, four or five months in the hospitals in New York, it's a film directed by Matt Heidemann. We're about to be done, we're, we're doing color grading <clears throat> next week for it, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful film. It's gonna premiere at, at, at one of the upcoming film festivals and I'm really excited about that film to hit the world because it was, it was one of the most traumatic and deep and emotional experiences in my career, to be able to be so up close to something so dramatic. And that's coming out. And yeah, tomorrow I'm going to see Pete Buttigieg and his husband, Shaston, filming the end of of a film that's also almost done about their presidential run. And um, I think I might be off to a new project very soon that I cannot speak about as I sign all these non-disclosure agreements that the lawyers
0: would come after me. (laughs) Mr. Tito, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you.
1: Awesome amazing. Thank you for your time. I'm so glad you're doing this. This is wonderful.